Hello there and welcome into another edition of The Intersection with conversation highlights from The Meeting House on Faith Radio about a variety of topics including news, information, and lifestyles approached from a Christian worldview perspective. Christine Soule of Providence Heights is along, sharing how God met her even in the aftermath of a dysfunctional childhood and her own questionable choices in order to show her His goodness. Plus, Benita Reisner has known her share of brokenness in life as well, but she has also experienced God's faithfulness and gives some encouragement on seeking God even when things might look bleak. And coming up on this edition of The Intersection, Patrick Prill has a background in finance and investments and now helps to equip Christians to talk about their faith in light of statements made by atheists that challenge those beliefs. You'll be hearing from him coming up. Finally, from the Woodson Center, Christian and civil rights leader Robert Woodson offers an update on the dream of the late Martin Luther King Jr. and the state of the modern-day civil rights movement. This is The Intersection, a production of The Meeting House. I'm Bob Crittenden. Christine Soule is the founder and CEO of a ministry to women and children in need called Providence Heights. In a recent conversation, she shared about God's work in her life and material related to her book called Broken and Beautiful, Let God Turn Your Mess into a Masterpiece. From that conversation, this is Christine Soul now. As a child, it, it was pretty difficult for me. My father was uh, divorced from my mom when I was about five years old. He was married eight times. My mom was hmm. married four. And just, yeah, a lot of dysfunction. Um, my mom, who's my hero, she worked about three different jobs, just trying to keep a roof over our heads. So I just always, um, I appreciated her hard work. I never um, blamed her for not being there, but, you know, I essentially raised myself from about the age of five on just because she was trying to provide for us. So um, at about the age of 10, I started doing drugs. At 17, I was pregnant. At 19, I had uh, identical twin boys. And um, after that, I started doing meth and was trafficked, abused, and living a gay lifestyle. I mean, I just was an extremely angry, bitter woman. And yeah, so life was kind of crazy. There was actually a point, I think I was about 16 years old. And my, let's see, he would have been my third father who actually adopted me. He was the one I really felt like, wow, I have a daddy. Um, this is this is normal. And so he actually ended up having an affair with my sister and they ran off and got married, drained the bank account. We lost everything we had. And yeah, by law, my sister was my stepmom and my father was my brother-in-law. So. Oh my goodness. So in this unstable home environment, as you mentioned, you turned to drugs at a relatively early age. You, your first pregnancy was at age 17. You had twins less than two years later. You became involved in human trafficking. So Christine, what was the breaking point for you? I, I sense that you came to a point where you said life can't really go on this way. Mm -hmm. your, your trajectory was certainly not in a positive direction. So tell me about how you are or how you came to know Christ and he turned your life around. At age 21, I was just in a really difficult place and hated the world. 
I wanted to claw men's eyes out. I had such a disgust for men. Um, and, you know, one day I just fell to my knees and I cried out to God. And I said, if you are real, take my life. It's yours. And I utterly surrendered my life to him. And, you know, I so tangibly felt the power and presence of God that I went and I threw the drugs and alcohol away. And, you know, where I should have had a heart attack for, for stopping drugs like that. Instead, I never had a desire, temptation or withdrawal. I was completely and totally healed. And, you know, I think something important for your viewers is, you know, at that point, here I was with three children in a, in a mini skirt and a low cut shirt showing up at church. And needless to say, I did not fit in. And, you know, that was a really hard season in my life because I was so desperate for the Lord. And I think a great opportunity for people mm -hmm. to know is if, if someone steps into a church and they might not look or act the way that you want them to, lead them, lead them. Because if they're stepping in a church, it's because they're hungry for the Lord. And, and you know, that's, that's part of our responsibility is to feed his sheep. And uh, that has been a real passion of mine is, you know, to take maybe the unlovely or the unlovable and, and really guide them so that they can know our loving Savior. Well, in light of all you had been through, tell me just a bit about how you came to know Christ better, how you really began to grow in him mm. and what you saw him do in your life. It was actually a passion play that I went to. And, and I sat there, I didn't even respond to an altar call. I didn't do anything magical. It was just sitting in my seat, watching a passion play. And I realized for the first time, hang on now, like Jesus died for me. He died for me. Hmm. And it became very tangible and very personal. And it was that Easter, I got a, a Bible for my own, for myself. And I just, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. I, I couldn't get enough of the word of God. So I would say um, through prayer, through just saturating myself in the word and, and getting connected to um, just a fellowship of believers, you know, through church, through ministries. Comments from Christine Soul here on The Intersection. You can find her online at Christine Soul with an E on the end, dot com. The Providence Heights website is ProvidenceHeights.org. Well, next up, it's Vanitha Reisner. She related about God's faithfulness in the midst of trials she has faced in her life as she shares in her book, Walking Through Fire, a memoir of loss and redemption. Here now from that conversation is Vanitha Reisner. I grew up in a Christian home, but I was not a believer. I went to church with my parents, but I was pretty angry at God from a young age because I had polio as a child. I lived in and out of the hospital once I was in the hospital for a year in a body cast. And so I felt like my life was so different from everyone else's. And so when I got home, when I was home from the hospital, I was bullied a lot. Uh, once kids threw stones at me and called me a cripple, kids would make fun of me, ask me what was wrong with me. And inside, I just started to grow bitter. And so I really wanted nothing to do with God. But when I was in high school, I went to FCA. And the only reason I went was because all the popular kids in my class went to FCA and all the cute guys went. So that's I wanted to fellowship with the athletes. So I went to FCA and I would sit in the back with a friend and we would talk about boys. But then one day she came back and said, God is real. 
And I remember thinking, oh, no, she's not going to want to talk about boys. She's going to want to talk about God. And she did. And so I remember one night after she had had a long conversation with me, just going to bed and saying, God, if you're real, show me. And then the next day I woke up, thought maybe I should just look at the Bible, which I hadn't really done, but I had one. And I flipped it open to Leviticus, different passages, and then finally flipped it open to John 9, just as I was asking the question, why? Why did this happen Hmm. to me? And in John 9, um, Jesus and the disciples see a man who is blind from birth, and the disciples say, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? And that was very similar to my question, like, why did this happen? And Jesus said, it is not that this man sinned or his parents, but that the works of God would be displayed in his life. And so God was really answering that why question, but not the why, what did I do wrong, but the why is there a purpose? And I think throughout my life, when I ask God the question, like, why, what have I done wrong? God continues to answer with the answer of why, why, because there is a purpose. And there's such a big difference. And I think in most of our suffering, we keep thinking it's a punishment. What have we done to Mm -hmm, deserve it? mm -hmm. And I think God keeps telling us it's not because you've done anything. It's because I'm going to use it. So I want you to build on that as you think about your times of suffering and really learning from the Lord that it's not a matter, what you've suffered is not a matter of punishment, but it's something that has purpose. So tell me about how you've kind of arrived at a a biblically-centered philosophy about really processing that suffering in light of God's love and in light of His purposes for you. Well, it's funny, after I came to Christ, you would think that I would have cemented that idea in my mind, because I I was 16, and I came to Christ reading John 9, but I bought into this idea that Christians really shouldn't suffer after that. So I thought I had had my one big suffering, and that was all. And then suffering sort of arrived in wave after wave, and when my son died, that was a really pivotal time in my life. I remember just crying out to God saying, why did you do this? Well, actually, honestly, Bob, the first thing I did was kind of lean away from God. I think it would be radical to say I walked away, but I certainly didn't want to talk to God. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And my Bible lay unopened. I really thought kind of your mom says, if you don't have anything nice to say, don't say anything at all. And that's really what I've my view of God became, you know, I I can't say anything good because I begged God to save my son's life and he didn't. And so I think it was really after I just leaned back to God and said, help me, that God really met me in this incredible way. And it was really through that and through listening to different teachers about how God really uses our suffering that I came to a much fuller understanding because I, I had suffered early on, but I had had about 15 years, really, of no suffering and kind of came to expect that. And I thought that the Christian life, the more you grew, the less you suffered. And to realize that that may be the opposite, it may be that the more you grow, the more you suffer, was a radical thought for me. But yet I started to see that God uses our suffering in incredible ways that we may not see in this life, we might, but 
we can trust that he is using it. Vanitha Reisner here on The Intersection. You can find her online at Vanitha, V-A-N-E-E-T-H-A dot com. This is The Intersection Podcast. It's a weekly production of The Meeting House, and you can find out more at meetinghouseonline.info or by going to the programming section at faithradio.org. You'll find a link to the Media Center, the place you can go to listen to or download full conversations with recent guests featured here on The Intersection Podcast. You can also find the podcast in the Media Center. It's also available through iTunes. Two blogs are accessible. One is The Three, with three stories of relevance to the Christian community that is updated weekly. And there's The Front Room, with devotional thoughts and commentary from The Meeting House. Plus, you can follow me on Twitter and access The Meeting House Facebook page. And there's a link to video content. Again, the website address is meetinghouseonline.info, or you can visit the programming section at faithradio.org. Conversations from The Meeting House can also be found through the Faith Radio app and through a variety of podcast platforms. Search for the Faith Radio Podcast when you visit Amazon Music, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or TuneIn. Next up on this edition of The Intersection, it's Patrick Prill. He's the author of the book, Things Atheists Say That Simply Make No Sense. He discussed his approach to countering views expressed by atheists, offering insight into how Christians can communicate their faith perspective. From that conversation, this is Patrick Prill now. Well, I think the thing that prompted it for me was really conversations with my kids. You know, I I lived in New Jersey for a number of years, and, you know, like most public schools, it's primarily an environment of naturalism. You know, you don't talk about God at school, and you kind of get one worldview and so your kids come home and they, they ask questions and your kids come home and they have comments. And the thing that I found was when I was looking for, you know, not necessarily theology books, but books that would respond to their questions, they didn't respond to the direct comments that atheists were making. So I couldn't really, you know, give my kid a, a 300 page book and say, hey, read this, it'll answer your question. When, as most parents know, if you haven't gotten the point across to your child in about three minutes, forget about it. You know, that's about all the time that they're going to give you. So what I really tried to do with the book is to crystallize the things that atheists are actually saying and to provide kind of a a three-minute response. How would you as a parent or how would you as a college student, you know, understand really what is the basic response to what they're saying without having to read 2300 page books on 36 subjects what did you observe what were they what were they saying that really presented such an affront to the christian faith well i think if you kind of simplify the groupings there there's kind of like three types of atheists naturalists you know, one group really views the meaning, purpose, whatever of life through the eyes of matter. And those are the guys that are basically nihilists because they say, look, you know, we're just lumps of, of matter. We have no meaning. We have no purpose. There's no meaning in the universe. There's no meaning of the universe. So that's one group. You have another group that kind of looks at the world through the eyes of biology. And this would be 
more along the lines of the the Peter Singers, the um, Richard Dawkins, where it's it's more of an evolutionary biology perspective. Mm-hmm. And then you have the the last group that are, for lack of better terms, kind of the atheist humanists that, you know, they rely on the first two groups. But what they really just try to distinguish themselves with is, you know, using the subject of purpose as an example. The first group would say that there is no purpose. Mm -hmm. The second group would say, well, there's biological purpose. The third group would say, well, there's no purpose per se, but go out and vent one of your own. And so the thing that really strikes me about all three groups is when you look at the big, big questions of life, you know, what is a person? Why are you here? Meaning, value, morality, ethics. They're all really grasping the way it air because they have nothing solid to base hmm. their beliefs upon. And Bertrand Russell's quotation to me was so telling, you know, in terms of you know, him being, in essence, like the, the grandfather of modern atheism or the, this new atheist movement. You know, and he, he says things like, in, related to, in relation to meaning and purpose, basically that meaning and purpose are outside the realm of truth and falsehood. And you go, are you kidding me? Hmm. Are you kidding me? You, you you don't even believe that you can have a meaningful opinion, and so that's to me just indicative of the the grasping at air that this whole new atheist movement is trying to get the rest of the world to join them in. Patrick Prill here on the intersection. You can find him online through the website thingsatheistssay.com. Well, finally, on this edition of the Intersection Podcast, it's the founder of the Woodson Center and founder and president of 1776 Unites, Robert Woodson. Based on an op-ed appearing on the Wall Street Journal website, gave opinion and appraisal of the work of Martin Luther King Jr. and the current work of the civil rights movement. From that conversation, this is Robert Woodson now. The civil rights movement was really, there were there were various fractions of it, you know, some favored uh, separating and, and, and establishing a separate country in America. There were others who felt that there should be armed resistance. Uh, there are others who felt that we should try to live up, uh, compel America to live up to its promise. And that was really the dominant view that Dr. King uh, expressed. But also Dr. King led us to say this should be a nonviolent revolution. And he demonstrated by his example uh, and his witness when his house was bombed and nearly killing his wife and daughter, and he was surrounded by hundreds of armed black men ready to just take up arms. Even in, in the presence of that, he, he cautioned violence against violence and therefore kept the civil rights movement um, uh, moving forward. So he was a man who was opposed to civil disobedience until the students at Greensboro forced his hand, and Dr. King, being the leader that he, that he was, was able to change positions if he felt 
it was in the best interest of, of advancing the cause. Why was it important that Dr. King and the movement remained a nonviolent movement? Because Dr. King said the best way to destroy an enemy is make him your friend. He also said that racism isn't evil because it's being visited upon black people by white people. It is evil and it needs to be opposed by all blacks and whites. So he really articulated a a, a message of inclusion uh, and cooperation and that all of us are fighting against a common evil. And as a consequence, he recruited people, even those who were his uh, enemies. He recruited them. I'd like for you to summarize here as we conclude, again, our conversation based on an op-ed piece that you co-wrote. It published over the weekend, and it has to do with an appraisal of the, the civil rights movement today. Of course, against that backdrop of the, of the contributions of Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. So as we, as we conclude, and you talk about this whole spirit of, of unity and working together, and you use that great example of the disaster relief organization, people coming together. How do we rekindle that flame? How do we re recapture that? I, I think about Dr. King talking about the, the content of our character and allowing that to be a unifying force. How can we, as, especially with the church leading the way, recapture that? Well, first of all, I think all of us have to have some more moral courage and speak out against the race grievance industry and right now they bludgeon people by accusing them of racism if you ever talk about personal responsibility. So the first thing we've got to do is have enough courage to speak the truth, even when it is inconvenient to us. That's the first thing. But I also think that we should partner with what we're doing at the Woodson Center is we're mobilizing the, the voices of black mothers who lost their children to violence, giving so when they speak to say that they are against defunding the police. In other words, we must um, a, a partner with messengers within the black community who still believe in this country and partner with them and join with them to push back against this assault on our nation's uh, past and, 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 and our future. So we must really come together. That's what the Woodson Center has done with 1776. We're developing a pro-American curriculum. We had 5,000 requests within four days of that curriculum. And so there's a thirst for moral excellence. There's a thirst uh, for redemption. And there's a thirst for, um, for a, 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 an America that stands for liberty for all. But we just got to come together and partner with people in these communities because the moral, a lot of people on the left use the black community as the foundation of its moral, uh, uh, moral standing. We have to withdraw that moral authority by letting the people speak for themselves. Robert Woodson here on The Intersection. You can find out more by going to woodsoncenter.org or by visiting 1776unites.com. We are nearing the end of this week's edition of the Intersection Podcast, which is a weekly production of The Meeting House. You can learn more through meetinghouseonline.info or by visiting the programming section at faithradio.org. 
You'll find a link to the Media Center. That's the place you can go to listen to or download full conversations with recent guests featured here on the Intersection Podcast. You'll find a link to the Intersection Podcast in the Media Center through the homepage. There's also an iTunes feed for the Intersection Podcast. Two blogs are accessible. One is The Three with three stories of relevance to the Christian community, and the other is The Front Room with devotional thoughts and commentary from The Meeting House. And you can follow me on Twitter at Access The Meeting House Facebook page, plus there's a link to video content. Again, the website address, meetinghouseonline.info, or you can go to the programming section at faithradio.org. Thanks for joining me for this edition of the Intersection Podcast. I'm Bob Crittenden.